Now the most observant among you may have witnessed me almost fall down all the stairs with the table a second ago. Because that was very close. Drew was like, oh, I was going to help you. And I was like, I'm, and as I was saying, I'm fine. I almost, truly almost fell all the way down the stairs while I was holding this table. So for those of you who saw that stumble, congratulations. That's a free gift for you today. We're in week five of our series in Matthew. And so far, what we've been handling is kind of like the informal prologue to the rest of the book. So we've looked at things like Matthew's brilliant genealogy that starts the book off, the stories of Jesus's birth and the kind of circumstances surrounding that in the beginning of his life. And the combination of the story that we looked at last week and the story we're going to look at today, these two stories that really go together, as we're going to see in a minute, these stories form the transition point from that private prologue section to the launching of Jesus's public ministry. It's an incredibly significant moment that we're going to be looking at today. So if you want to read along, we're going to read through the story. It's Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. You are welcome to read along. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands and feet, and on, your hand, on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now, before we go verse by verse through this passage, there's something that needs to be acknowledged about this, which is that it is just, for the modern person, this story is bizarre and so intense. I mean, this is the Son of God, Jesus Christ, squaring off in a battle of wits against the devil. And so if you've been like raised in the church or you've spent a lot of time in the church, you've maybe heard the story a bunch of times, but deep down, most of us, have a kind of built-in skepticism that guards against this kind of story. And you just have to start by acknowledging, man, this is not the kind of thing that we think about or talk about in our daily lives. Jesus Christ in a battle of wits against the devil. And here's the thing. We've talked about this a little bit here before, so I won't like spend too much time here. But what you have to know about yourself is that those of us who were born and raised in this part of the world, which is most of us here, not all of us, but most of us, as modern people, we have a deep and kind of built-in suppressing of the idea of the existence of beings like the devil. And that actually makes us historically and globally kind of weird. Like it feels very natural to us, but for the majority of human history and most people who are alive today, the existence of a spirit world that is populated by spiritual beings who have an actual impact on your life, that's instinctive to most people. But for us, we have just inherited, whether you like it or not, this kind of default materialist view of the universe. That's the idea that 
the only things that are real, that can be said to actually exist, are the things that we can see and taste and touch and measure in a lab. That's what materialism is. And all of us have kind of inherited that worldview, whether we like it or not. So when you read a story about a being like the devil, the first thing you have to realize is that for the vast majority of us, we just have a hard time stomaching that. And I used the word suppress before, that we kind of suppress this, because I actually do believe that deep down, most of us do have an awareness there is a reality to the world beyond just what we can see. I mean, we look at the news, we look at what's going on in the world, we look at human history, we think about the horrors and atrocities and violence and the awful, nightmarish things that happen in our world. And, and there's part of us that knows there's more going on here than just people making bad decisions. I think we actually, you know, the, the horror movies that our culture loves, even the, the Halloween decorations that are starting to fill all of our neighborhoods and giving my three-year-old nightmares, by the way, which I'm pretty upset about. It's like, is it inappropriate to knock on every neighbor who has Halloween decorations and chew them out because my daughter had a nightmare about a skull last week? Because that happened to me. It was really cute. She's three and she doesn't know what the word skull, so she just told me that she had a nightmare that there was a smile made of bones moving across a rock. And I was like, I'm going to knock out half of my neighbors today. <laughs> That's not what I'm talking about today, though. But deep down in us, there is something that I do think is actually aware of this truth. And if you're a Christian and you believe that the Bible is true and authoritative, then you have to believe the Bible teaches that there is a spiritual resistance and rebellion against God and God's will and God's people, and that at the center of that rebellion is a being, and a being who has dozens of titles but no actual name. Do you guys know that? We don't know this being's name. Now, probably there's stuff coming to your mind that you're going, well, isn't it this or isn't it that? And every single word that we use to describe this character is a title, not a name. We have no idea what his name is. Now, really briefly, just as kind of like a, a, a nerdy but interesting side note, why do, you, why do you think that is? Why don't we know his name? It's possible he doesn't have one, but, but it's very likely that he does, and we're just not told it. And there's different ways of answering that question, but the one that I like the most, I heard it first from a, a theology professor, Dr. Gary Brashears, and he talked about in the Exodus account, Pharaoh. What's the Pharaoh's name in that story? You guys don't know the Pharaoh's name in the Exodus story? He's the king of the most powerful nation on earth at the time. You don't, you don't know his name because it's not in the story. He's just called Pharaoh, but that's like calling him king or something like that. And you, we know so many other characters' names in the Exodus story. You know Moses' name. You, we know his wife's name, his father-in-law's name, his brother and his sister's name. We know the names of the midwives who delivered Moses in that story, but we don't know Pharaoh's name. And the reason that Dr. Bashir's gives for that, that I, I tend to agree with and, and like, is that it's a polemic. It's an insult against him and his legacy that he won't even be named in this story. And I think that might also be what's going on with this guy. So everything we have is a title, and all the titles we have for him reveal different things about him. So in this story, the main title he gets is the devil. That's from the Greek word diabolos. It means slanderer or accuser. Another popular one or a common one in the Bible is the Satan, and that's from a Hebrew word that's very similar to diabolos. It means more like opposer, the one who stands against someone. And it also carries that nuance of slander and false accusation. He's also called things like the deceiver. In this story, he's called the tempter. He's called the father of lies, the lord of this world. One really creative name 
comes from the prophet Isaiah, who calls him the morning star. And morning star, he's talking about Venus, which is also the Latin word for that is Lucifer. So that's where we get that name. So this morning star image is about this planet Venus that shines brighter than all the other stars and almost looks like it wants to compete with the sun in the morning. You see the idea being communicated there. So we have all these names, all these titles rather, but not a single name for this being. And again, you have to acknowledge in your heart that there's something in you that has a hard time accepting the existence of a being like this. And here's why it's so important and why we're taking so much time before we even look at the passage to talk about this. Because if you do not understand the existence of this being, then you will have a very, very hard time understanding one of the central facets of Jesus and his mission on earth. John is going to say later on in one of his letters that the Son of Man came to earth to destroy the works of the devil. This is central to the calling, to the vocation, and the mission of Jesus. And today's story is their first face-off, not starring Nicolas Cage, where they are going to go in the wilderness and face one another for the first time. I mean, the setup could not possibly be more epic. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now, this word tempted is a really important word in the story. And it's one that you, you have to kind of understand how it works because it's a Greek word that means something slightly different than tempted. And, and as is usually the case with this kind of stuff, the word tempted is fine. It's not like a wrong translation. It's just a much narrower word than the Greek word that it's translating. So here's a super nerdy graphic. If you're into this, you're welcome. If you're not, I promise I'll be quick. This is just kind of a graph of the different ways that the Greek word peirazzo is used in the New Testament. And as you can see, there's a big chunk of uses, one of the largest percentages that is actually tempt. But an even larger percentage is test. And testing and tempting are not the same thing. Very different. Tempting always carries the nuance that you're trying to get someone to do something bad or evil. So you don't tempt someone to do something good. You only ever tempt them to do something bad. The word test, which I would argue is, is a, a better and more suitably broad definition for peirazzo, testing is about revealing what's actually there. So when you go to take a test at school, you are revealing whether or not you know what you need to know about the subject you're being tested on. Or if you go to get your driver's license test, they're testing whether or not you can safely drive a car. Even something that's not involving people, like, a, like if you have a crash test for a car seat or something like that, a company has to do a crash test. That is to reveal whether or not that car seat can handle the impact of a car accident. It's the whole point of why it's there. So tempting is kind of included in that, but it's more specific. And the idea of testing has more to do with revealing what's there. You get this in um, uses of this word, like when the Pharisees come to test Jesus, that's the same word. And they're not trying to get Jesus to do something bad. They're trying to trick him into revealing that he's not really worth the attention that he's getting. So it's like, it's testing that has bad motives, but it's not the same thing as tempting. Even more kind of like showing the breadth of how this word can be used, Paul, who's a persecutor of the church, when you first meet him in the book of Acts, he becomes a Christian and he goes to Jerusalem to rejoin the apostles. But everyone's kind of nervous about him at first because he was like throwing Christians in jail and stuff just before that. And so when it shows up, when he shows up, the Bible actually says that he tries to join the apostles and it uses that exact same word. 
And so, so here's the idea, and here's why it matters. The devil in this story is not just trying to get Jesus to do something bad so that he can, like, mess up his perfect record. I do think that's part of it, but it almost presumes too much about what the devil knows about Jesus and his mission. It's not just like a trick to see, like, if I can get him to do something wrong, then he'll no longer be perfect, and we can get him in trouble now. Now, that, again, is part of it. But at the heart of this, and you'll see this when we unpack what's going on in the temptations, is he is trying to, and again, his motives are bad. He is against Jesus, but the goal is to reveal and expose who he actually is and what's actually there. There's one more interesting thing about this passage. It says that he's fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, does this idea of 40 days in the wilderness ring any bells for you? If you're familiar with the Old Testament, i give you more help. Sons of God who come out of Egypt, like Jesus did in week two of the series, and pass through waters, like Jesus just did in the baptism, and they come out and are brought into the wilderness for 40, that's years in that case. But who are we talking about here? This is Israel. Matthew is very, very intentionally mapping the story of Jesus onto the story of Israel. Here you have Israel who spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness after being brought out of Egypt and after being brought through the waters. Look at this passage from Deuteronomy chapter 8. This is Moses, and he's talking to the Israelites about their time in the wilderness. And he says, listen to how much of this relates to what Jesus is doing. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. This is the exact same concept. Moses is explaining, you were called, you had this job to represent God before the nations, Israel. That's what you were supposed to do. And so God brought you into the wilderness, and for 40 years you were tested to reveal, look what it says, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep the commandments or not. Now, fans of the Old Testament, does Israel successfully pass all the tests that they're given? No. Overall, do we give them like a thumbs up or a thumbs down record for how well they do in the wilderness? Big old giant thumbs down, just like what Isaac is known to give all of us on stage when he, when he makes eye contact. Two thumbs down. <laughs> Ask yourself, does that remind you? Does the idea of, of someone who's called to represent God, maybe carry the image of God, who is tempted, in this case, by the Satan specifically, and fails? Does that remind you of any other iconic Bible stories? This is Adam and Eve. You have human beings given the job, the role of representing God, of bearing God's image, and they face temptation from the serpent who is later revealed to be the Satan, and they fail in their task, and as a result, they're sent out into the wilderness. 
And by the way, if we had time, I could show you how this exact same pattern maps onto character after character in the Bible. This is Abraham and Hagar. This is David and Bathsheba. It's the people of Israel and Saul, their first king. The same thing happens over and over again. There's a pattern throughout the Bible where God will call someone, give them a job to represent him. They will be tempted, tested, and what will be revealed by that test is failure to be capable of the job they've been called to. So when Jesus goes into the wilderness to face the devil, he is stepping into a test that Adam and Abraham and David and Israel and you and me and every other human being in human history has faced and failed. The stakes are incredibly high. And you're meant to be asking at this point, can't, what can he possibly do? Can he succeed where they have failed? And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now it's easy to kind of assume that this temptation is about hunger. Jesus has been fasting for 40 days. We're talking about pretty much the maximum of what a person can do before you start to have serious long-term problems. So he is starving and he's offered bread in a sense. And so that looks like it's kind of what this is about. But the key to understanding this temptation and kind of the heart of all of them is actually not in the bread. It's in the first thing that the Satan tells Jesus. He says, if you are the son of God. Remember I told you that the baptism and this story go together. Jesus in the baptism, he's put under the water. He comes out of the water and it says the heavens open. And what does God the Father say to him? He says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So he comes from the water, is told the voice of the father from heaven says, this is my son. And he's brought into the wilderness. And the first thing that the Satan does is call that into question. He goes, if you're the son of God, and this should have echoes of the serpent in Eden for you, because what happens in Eden? Adam and Eve have been given all of these trees from which they can freely eat. And there's one tree that God has told them not to eat from. But the serpent comes and says, did God really tell you you can't eat from any of these trees? He's questioning. He's calling into question the goodness of God, the trustworthiness of God. And specifically in this case, Jesus' relationship to the Father. Jesus is standing with the Father. You might have heard a voice from heaven will prove it. If you're really God's son, then why are you stumbling around starving in the wilderness? God's son should be full. So eat something. By the way, it's also important, I think, to realize at the start of this passage, it says that the spirit of God led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the Satan. Because sometimes you can read this passage and it's almost like the devil's lurking there and he kind of traps Jesus while he's in the middle of like a prayer and fasting retreat or something like that. That is not the case. Jesus is going to confront the devil, not the other way around. It's, it's happening on purpose. It's God's plan that this should happen. Because again, if this being exists, which the Bible says he does, then core to the mission of Jesus is that he must deal with him. And when they meet, the first thing he does is call into question whether he's really, truly the Son of God. 
And Jesus' answer, some of you have already noticed probably, comes straight from Deuteronomy chapter 8, that passage that was all about Israel being tested in the wilderness. And what Moses says is that God did this so that Israel could learn a lesson. And the lesson is what Jesus says. Jesus here is demonstrating he knows the truth that Israel was supposed to learn and failed to learn in the wilderness, that I rely upon God, not just upon bread. Second temptation is similar, but has a different nuance to it. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you, you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And you can see, one more time, the exact same thing. He starts off with that question, if. This is still up for debate, as far as the devil's concerned. So, if you're the son of God, let's prove the promises of God to you true. And then he does the same thing again that he did in Genesis 3. He quotes God's word, quotes directly from Psalm 91, which is a beautiful psalm all about trusting in God and relying upon God. He quotes from that psalm and says, hey, it says God will send his angels to take care of you, that he'll hold you up so you don't strike your foot on a stone. So let's go here to the temple, the place where your people go to seek God, the place where God's presence is manifest in a special and unique way. Let's go here and put that to the test. Let's see if he actually loves you like a son. Prove it that you're actually his son. Now, very bizarre side note here. The psalm that Satan is quoting here, Psalm 91, in the time of Jesus in the first century, this was a common psalm that was used by Jewish exorcists in exorcism rituals. How bizarre is that? So when a Jewish exorcist would go and he would perform his rituals to try to cast a demon out of someone, that psalm is one of the things that he would use. And here we have the Satan quoting it to Jesus. It's bizarre. And Jesus says back to him from Deuteronomy 6, Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. See, he sees that Satan, just like he did in the garden, is taking truth from God's scripture and twisting it. This is a verse that's about trusting God. And the Satan has twisted it into a verse about testing God. And Jesus knows all about the fact that we don't test God. Now, the third temptation is in some ways the craziest and the most dramatic, and it and is different than the other two. It says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, whenever you get to this point, the question that always arises, and some of you might already be wondering this, is could the Satan make good on that offer? Let's just do a quick, we'll see how bold everybody is. We'll do a quick poll. If Jesus had done this, hypothetically, does Satan have the authority to hand over all of the kingdoms of this world and their glory to Jesus? Who thinks yes? Okay, good number of yeses. Who thinks no? Who is way too afraid to raise your hand for either of these options right now? <laughs> Who didn't want, no, I'm just kidding, just keep going. Now, there's, you're in good company either way, because much smarter people than me hold to both of those positions. And the arguments basically go like this. It's like one version says, well, he is the father of lies. That is one of his titles. That's who Jesus says he is. And so he's making this offer, but he can't possibly follow through on it. He's a liar. And the other school of thought says, no, the Bible also says that he's the ruler of this world. 
So he absolutely has authority to hand this over to Jesus. And again, smarter people than any of us hold to both of those opinions. But I would suggest, it's just entirely my opinion, that both of those answers might be missing the point of what's actually being offered in this moment. See, I don't think that the devil is saying, hey, if you fall down and sing a worship song about me right now, then I'll turn my spiritual key and hand over authority to you and you'll have it all kind of delivered into your lap. I think what's going on here is that the devil has a way of achieving power. Self-exaltation. That's what he's been doing from the very beginning. That's why he's the morning star, the one who exalts himself above the light of the sun. And the path that Jesus is on is the opposite. He's humbling himself from heaven to earth, from earth to becoming a servant, and less and less, making less and less and less of himself, not crushing his enemies, not seizing power. And the Satan is saying, if you bow to me and go my way, man, we can have a shortcut to you ruling the nations. Jesus is destined to be king of heaven and earth. What the Satan is offering is a different way, a shortcut, a different route to that kind of rule and reign. And central to the purpose of Jesus is that he is going to be a different kind of king than every king that's ever lived on earth. He's different than the Nebuchadnezzars and Cyruses and Herods and Caesars of this world. He's going to be a king who doesn't crush his enemies and seize power. And the Satan, it's almost like you picture Darth Vader saying, join me and we will rule the galaxy together. I think that's more what's actually being offered here, is a different route to power, different route to rule than the one that God has chosen for his son. And Jesus responds in a unique way compared to the other ones. He does quote a verse, but first he tells him, Be gone, Satan. Hupago, go away, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. This is part of why I'm partial to that view of what Satan is offering, because that word that Jesus says, hupago in Greek, go away. Jesus is going to say that exact same word again in Matthew chapter 16, and we'll get there eventually. At the pace we're going, it'll probably be in about four years. <laughs> Jesus is going to say to someone, hupago, get away behind me. And he's going to call that person Satan. Who is that? Who's he talking to? Peter, one of his closest friends. And what did Peter say to get that reaction out of Jesus? He told him, you're not going to die. That comes when Jesus has just told them that he is, the Son of Man is going to be delivered over to be crucified. And Peter stands up in typical Peter fashion and says, no way, that's not what messiahs do. You're not going to die. And something in that resonates with that same dark, satanic temptation for Jesus to take a different route to rule and reign and so he tells Peter the exact same thing he told Satan and even calls him Satan. And in this moment, Jesus tells him, be gone, get away from me, because no matter what you're offering, I know that there is only one who I will worship, and it is the Lord your God. And it's, it's, you can't miss verse 11 because it's so beautiful. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. What did... What did the Satan try to get Jesus to doubt one temptation ago? What does he quote from? Psalm 91. Hey, he said, the Bible says God will send angels to take care of you. Let's test that. And Jesus says, no, I'm not testing God. 
And after the story's over, what does God do? Angels come and take care of him. Jesus is vindicated for his trust in God. He didn't have to jump from the temple to prove that God loved him and that God would care for him. It's a beautiful conclusion. And so this is Jesus's moment of victory, his initial moment of victory over the devil. He has been faced with that same temptation that humanity is always faced with, the one that Adam failed at, the one that Abraham and David failed at, the one that each of us as individuals have and would fail at. And Jesus has faced it and stood firm in the face of it. And from this point on, we're going to see the launch of his public ministry. But as we reflect on this, we've got to ask, what's the deal with this test? Because Jesus, Jesus passes the test on our behalf, clearly. And yet there's this expectation in Scripture that all of us, at some point, should expect that we might face the same test. I mean, I want you to think about the prayer that Jesus teaches his apostles to pray. We call it the Lord's Prayer. He says, when you pray, do it like this. He says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Then what does he say? Lead us not into perasmas, the test. The same exact word. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or the evil one. It's not clear in Greek. So you'll find translations that go both ways. And most, most of them will actually footnote that. Lead us not into the test. So built in to the very prayer that Jesus tells his followers to pray is this request from God that, God, I, I don't want to be led into that same temptation that Jesus was led into. Remember, that's the way it starts. The Holy Spirit in the baptism comes to rest on Jesus, and he is led into the wilderness to be tempted. Jesus teaches us to pray, Lord, don't lead me into that same test. And yet the second half, if I do, when I do, deliver me from the evil one. I want to be really clear at this point because people can get weird with this and it, it, it kind of leads to all kinds of weird theological ideas. I am not saying at all that you are going to be directly faced by the devil himself and tempted by Satan. The devil is not God. He's not omnipresent. He can't tempt and test every Christian at the same time, okay? He's limited in power. And chances are he's got bigger fish to fry than anybody in this room. So I'm not talking about the devil coming to you and you being tempted in precisely the same manner that Jesus is. I'm talking about the same type of test, but, you know, orders of magnitude less because of the influence that the Satan has on the world that we live in and the lives that we live. So what should we expect from a test like that? What might it look like? I think Tim Mackey, who's a Bible scholar who I really love from the Bible Project, he has just this beautiful and I think very simple but profound answer to that question. He says, Christians should expect that the test for us will look very similar to the test that Jesus takes. And at the core of that is the questioning of Jesus's standing with God. It's a questioning of his identity in the Father. Jesus has just been told from heaven, this is my beloved son. And the thing that the devil questions is, are you really God's son? And so Christians should be ready to feel that same kind of accusation and slander. And my guess is that most of you who've been Christians for a while, that actually probably sounds somewhat familiar to you. That feeling 
that says, and you really honestly think you're God's child? You think Jesus loves you? You're a Christian. You think you have like a seat at God's table, like God actually could love someone like you. I mean, look at the life you live. Look what happens to you. People don't treat you right. Everything's in shambles. Stuff's just going wrong left and right, and you're miserable. And you think that's how God wants his children to live? Or maybe it's a slightly different tactic, and it's you think you're a son of God, you think you're a Christian, but man, look at the stuff you do. Look at the mistakes you make. Look at the things you struggle with. Does that seem like something that the son of God, children of God, should be dealing with? I can tell you quite honestly that that is a voice that I am entirely familiar with. And like I said, my guess is that most of you, if you've been Christians a while, feel the same way. There might even be some of you who haven't yet taken the step of following Jesus, and part of it is because of that, because of a sense deep within you that, yeah, that might be good for all of these people who seem to be really happy and have it all together, but I cannot possibly be a child of God, not someone like me. And the beauty of the story that we just read is it gives us the ultimate, what would Jesus do for that situation? when you are faced with that accusation that you don't have a place in God's family, that you are not loved by God. Because Jesus does not rely on his feelings in that moment. When Jesus is accused, Jesus doesn't go like, well, actually, Satan, I, I feel closer to God than I've ever felt before in my life. I think the hunger is kind of working for me. Like I've, got, I've been praying a lot. I feel really connected. People have been really affirming me lately. Like I'm feeling really good. He doesn't do that. He also doesn't, and this is, this is an interesting one, he doesn't appeal to the experience that he just had. Satan goes, hey, if you're the son of God, and Jesus doesn't go like, well, hold on, let me stop you right there, because 40 days ago, I was baptized, and a voice from heaven said I'm his son. So I think I'm pretty solid on that one. Jesus doesn't appeal to his feelings, doesn't appeal to his experiences. He goes straight to what? Scripture. Jesus quotes from his Bible, our Old Testament. And we should do the same thing. And so when you feel that accusation that you don't belong in the family of God, you remember 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And even then you might think, well, that might not be about me. I mean, I haven't done anything enough to deserve that or to earn that kind of a title. John 1.12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. See, I didn't become a child of God because I earned a place in God's family. All I did was receive that which was freely given to me and put my trust in the name of Jesus and trusted myself to Jesus. That's how you become a child of God. And then the accusation might even continue from there and say, well, how can you possibly know that? You don't even feel that way about yourself. That's where Romans 8 says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. The Spirit bears witness that we are children of God. And not just children, but actually co-heirs in the household of God alongside Christ Jesus. And by the way, built into this is the expectation that the Christian will suffer 
So no, I don't look at the circumstances of my life and say, if God really loved me, I wouldn't be going through this. The king I follow is a king who suffers and offers an invitation to his followers to pick up a cross and follow him in the way of suffering. And finally, and most simply, and by the way, we could have done like 12 of these. We just did four instead. Galatians 3.26 gets to the heart of the entire thing and says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Do not put the weight of those accusations on the flimsy, weak foundation of your feelings. They just can't hold it. They're not designed to, and they can't. They will fail you. You will have days where you feel close to God. You will have days when you feel far from God. And in all of those times, you have to lean on that which does not change, the Word of God. How do you know you're God's child? Because God said so not because you feel like it. If you trust in Jesus, if you are in Christ Jesus, then you are a son, a daughter of God through faith, and it does not matter how you feel on a given day or the accusation that you hear on a given day. If you put your trust in Jesus, then you are a son, you are a daughter of God. And so this is not only the answer to that accusation that you may hear throughout your life, and I, I would be willing to say probably will hear throughout your life. It's also just the foundation for how we can feel secure in a world that will tempt and will test us. How can we step forward into that from a place of security and safety? It's through knowing exactly what this verse says, that Jesus Christ passed the test for you, and not just the test in the wilderness, but test after test leading to Gethsemane and then ultimately to the cross where he goes and dies in your place. So how do you have a sense of security and peace and safety and well-being despite your ever-changing feelings and the accusations that may come your way? You rest upon the truth that has been told to you in Scripture. And brothers and sisters, that means you have to read them. Bring these words into your heart and your soul so that they can speak truth when all you're hearing are lies. And lean on one another, because we don't all know these verses by heart. But you might call a friend and tell him how you're feeling, and that friend might be on the other end of the line furiously Googling verses about how God loves you or something like that. But they are there to speak the truth of God's love to you in the moments that you don't feel it within yourself. And so I just want to encourage all of you, know that the truth about you is not found in your feelings about yourself. It's found in what God has decided and what God has told us. And Jesus in the wilderness, the Son of God incarnate on earth, when he's faced with the devil, he goes to Scripture. And so we're going to take communion together. I kind of love the, like, uh, the new sound of all the plastic bags wrestling when we start doing communion. can stand with me. This meal that we eat is about the price that was paid to secure for you that place in God's family that you have if you are a Christian. If you know Jesus, if you are a child of God, you are one because of what Jesus was willing to do on your behalf. And so we remember today that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after he had broke it, he said, this is my body broken for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. And he took the cup and said, this cup is my blood poured out for the remission of sins, for a new covenant. Covenant is relationship language. The blood of Jesus was poured out 2,000 years ago to create a new opportunity for relationship between you and God, that instead of being God's enemy, you get a place in his family as his child. What better news could there possibly be than that? And so we remember the spilled blood of Jesus together. Lord, I pray for every one of my brothers and sisters in this room, particularly those who might be feeling the burden of that accusation now in this, this season of life that they're in, that they might be tempted to doubt that you love them. Lord, I pray that an assurance from your spirit would fill their hearts today, that even as we sing this song, they would feel a deep sense of peace, that it's not about the things going on in their lives, it's not about their ability to be perfect, but it's about what you have done on our behalf and the free invitation that you've offered to every single one of us to follow you and be your child. Lord, I pray, as you told us to pray, that you would not lead us into that kind of test, that you would spare us from that, Lord. And yet, if it happens, we ask for your deliverance that your spirit would bring to mind the truth of scripture, that you love us, that you're for us, that we are yours because you bought us and claimed us. And I pray that every Christian in this room would feel a deep sense of that truth. We thank you, Lord, for being willing to send your son into the wilderness to face that temptation. We thank you for his victory. Thank you that through his victories, we have victory over the evil one as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.